And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal, the full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, it is, of course, uh, Thursday. It's the second best day of the week. And it would be a lot better, but I have to have Michael Leibowitz here today. So, you know, that's just that's just the way Thursdays go. You're stuck with him. Uh, actually, we're we'll talking a little bit this morning about what do 1990s hairdos. This morning, my wife was so excited. She was watching TikTok and she said, honey, 90 hairdos are coming back. I don't know why that excites her, but... Now, she has very long blonde hair, so I guess there's new styles she can do with it now. So whatever that is. So, you know, I keep throwing back to the 80s, you know, with the, <laughs> with the, what was that? What was that? Olivia Newton-John, the wings, the bangs and the wings and all that. So. Oh, yeah. Big hair. The big hair. Yes. Yeah. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure what a 90s hairdo looks like. But anyway, apparently they're coming back. We'll have to research that. Yeah, we're yeah. apparently coming back. And also, uh, we may have another long-term capital management potentially on our hands, so we'll talk a little bit about what those have in common. It may be a lot more than you think. So, <laughs> Could be a hairy discussion. Could be a hairy discussion, yes, absolutely. Uh, so a um, couple other things, of course. Uh, we have the big employment report out tomorrow. Now, uh, ADP was out yesterday. And that came in a lot weaker than expected, 89,000 jobs. Now, you've got to be careful with this because there's not the correlation between ADP and, and the BLS employment report has not been very good as of late. Uh, we've seen strong ADP reports and weak BLS reports and vice versa. So there's, there's no real telling what tomorrow is going to be. But we are seeing some real evidence of things going on. Um, you know, just recently um, we talked about oil prices in particular, and we said, "Hey, oil prices getting very extended here." Of course, everybody was talking about oil going to $120 a barrel and all these type of things. And we've got this uh, shortage of oil and lots of headlines over the, over the last few weeks. And we talked about this very strong rally in oil prices that we had seen going back uh, you know, to, to, to May of this year and that oil prices had gotten extremely overbought and was due for a correction. And what a correction we had just in three days. We had very, very sharp decline in oil prices, went from almost $96 a barrel down to 82, uh, literally just over the course of a trading week. Um, and again, that's just kind of a function of a couple of things, but importantly about that is we're seeing a very sharp slide in gasoline demand. Now that's a consumption product. So that's, you know, retail consumers going to the gas station, you know, getting gasoline. We're seeing a bit, very big drop in gasoline demand. Now, what's curious about that is at the same time, we're seeing a very big slide in credit card spending all in the month of September. So this kind of all just showed up at once and this suggests that we might see weaker retail sales report. Now that's in two weeks, but there is some early evidence here that maybe we may be seeing kind of that cusp of that lag effect starting to impact your gifts. You know, cause again, in September, everybody had to start making student loan payments and all this. So 
all of a sudden it looks like maybe, and again, I'm not making a statement here, but there is some anecdotal evidence that maybe the economy just kind of tapped on the brakes here just a bit. So this decline in oil prices triggered a sell signal from a very high level. Now oil price is getting pretty oversold here on a real short term basis, so you may see a bit of a bounce, but it looks like oil is going to try to retrace back to around $80 a barrel. So again, we got some more kind of downside risk here in oil prices. Uh, we had recently taken profits out of our energy stocks because of that very overbought condition oil prices. And this is just very typical. We talked about this before. Um, you know, if you go back and look at a long history of, of oil prices, they tend to have these little spikes. They always correct at some point. And again, when they get very overbought, you see these types of corrections occur on a real regular basis. So again, that wasn't really that big of, uh, of a shock that happened, but that also led to yesterday a bit of a reversal in the dollar. So, you know, everybody was talking about de-dollarization and Mike was writing articles and I was writing articles about how that's a myth. And of course, we ran into this very strong rally in the dollar. Well, yesterday, that weaker economic data that came in also weighed on the dollar here a bit. So what you would expect, weaker economy, then not as much demand for U.S. dollars. So that's kind of, of, kind of the reflex that went through the, the markets yesterday. So tomorrow, that employment report, if it comes in weak, is going to probably exacerbate this current kind of reflex in the markets. Uh, weaker dollar, weaker oil prices, weaker employment means weaker economy, uh, potentially lower yields, and um, and, and, and ironically, because the market has been very correlated to bonds as of late, may see a counter trend rally in the dollar uh, in, in stocks as well. So again, all this is going to be very predicated on tomorrow's employment report. So we'll have a lot to talk about um, once that report comes out, we get to analyze it a bit. Here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Um, yesterday, the market did come down and we are we are flirting with that 200-day moving average. And this is kind of a key support level for the markets for a variety of reasons. And when we go back and kind of look at the markets here over the last, uh, really since that October rally kind of came into to, to effect, we've got a couple of things going on. First of all, we're, we're flirting with this kind of breakout support. So we talked about the market had been consolidating and working through kind of a, a, a bottoming process coming out of October. And then we broke out of that consolidation um, in March. So kind of following that, that, that bit of a sell-off in March due to the, the, the banking crisis, uh, the markets broke out of that and we had this nice rally here. Well, that, that breakout level also corresponds right now with that 200-day moving average. So there's a really good level of support and real critical level of support for stocks right here. So uh, stocks need to defend this 200-day level and, and get a bit of a move higher here and start to kind of firm up if we're going to have this year-end rally that, you know, historically, since 1956, whenever you've had a weak August-September period, you've always had a strong fourth quarter. So, again, historically, the odds are in favor, statistically speaking, of a rally going into the end of the year. But if that's going to happen, we're going to have to defend this support level at the 200-day moving average. If we break below that, there are some other key levels of support, but most likely we're going to be looking uh, around 4,000 on the S&P. So there is certainly some downside risk. And if we do get a confirmed break, now that's the key, the key word here is a confirmed break of the 200-day moving average, then we're probably going to be looking at, the, at 4,000 on the S&P and we'll have to reduce equity risk and 
um, kind of react accordingly to, to that break. But right now that hasn't occurred yet. Markets are very oversold here. So again, if we do get a, a reflexive rally here that converts this MACD sell signal back into a buy signal, that should give the market a bit of support here for a rally, probably back up to around this 4,300 level, uh, which is where the 100-day and the 20-day and the 50-day are all kind of, of coalescing together at the moment. So there is a, some decent upside uh, for the markets in the short term. Bit of a relief rally here would not be surprising. Um, the interesting thing will be whether or not that we set a lower high by the end of the year. Um, if we do set a lower high by the end of the year, that's going to kind of dove into this idea of this weaker economic growth starting to translate and this lag effect catching up into a weaker economy next year that's going to weigh on earnings, weigh on valuations. And again, that's a whole different ballgame once we get through the, the next couple of months. So again, kind of keep a watch here. Again, we've got some key support levels that we need to hold on to in the markets. Um, we'll see what happens. The ADP report is going to be a very good driver of markets. If that thing comes in really hot tomorrow, you know, well in excess of expectations, shows really strong growth, uh, that's going to weigh on stocks here because that's going to push the Fed, which is meeting at the end of the month for their next meeting, again, push that odds of another rate hike by the Fed. Right now, I'm, you know, we'll talk about that this morning. The Fed's probably done, but let's we'll see what that employment report says tomorrow. All right, quick break. We're going to come back. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back from the break, we'll pick up with Michael Leibowitz and talk a little bit about uh, long-term capital management and 90s hairdos. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the Internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, like I said uh, at the opening break, my wife was very excited this morning. She was uh, drinking her coffee, watching TikTok. And, you know, and I always ask her, I said, what are you watching on TikTok? What is it that fascinates you? She says, oh, that's where I get all my recipes from. Lots of food, food ideas. And so, you know, but she's over there. She's chuckling all the time, right? I'm just chuckling about stuff. And so I happen to walk. So I ask her this morning, as I always do in the mornings, I get up, I make my coffee. And of course, being a good husband, I say, honey, would you like a, a, a refill on your coffee? So I take the coffee pot over and I fill her coffee cup up. So as I did that, I looked over at her TikTok, baby goats. Baby goats? Baby goats. Miniature, I should say miniature goats. Yes. She's, uh, so this is not recipes she's looking at. It's miniature goats. <laughs> I have a feeling that once my dog dies. You're getting a goat? I'm getting a goat. <laughs> We'll see what happens, but <laughs> there's something strange about that. <laughs> I have to admit they are kind of cute. So, but I'm not sure I want one in the house. But <laughs> anyway, uh, so she's talking about 90 hairdos, and and uh, she says they are coming back. And it's interesting because uh, in the late 1990s, and uh, Michael Leibowitz just wrote an article about this. We had touched on this previously about in the late 1990s. There was a, an event that occurred, and as we've talked about repeatedly here, you know, when the Fed's hiking rates, um, bar none, there really has not ever been a soft landing in the economy. 
uh, when the Fed is hiking rates. And everybody points back to 1995 and said, oh, well, there was a time that they were hiking rates and we didn't have a, a recession. And that's a true statement, except for the fact that when we look back through history and we go, okay, what are the common denominators of when the Fed's hiking rates and you have a recession? There's always been an inverted yield curve except for 1995. The yield curve didn't invert until 1998, and then you had your recession, you know, shortly thereafter. So, again, you know, it's it's kind of a, a timing anomaly. Everybody kind of talks back, you know, looks back to 1995. It's like, oh, this time is going to be the, you know, going to be that soft landing scenario. The Fed's hiking rates and the economy's strong and everything is great. But we have a very deeply inverted yield curve um, that is beginning to uninvert. And as Mike and I have talked about previously, it's not the inversion of the yield curve. This is the the mistake that the media makes. Uh, And last year was a good example of this. The yield curve inverted and the media is everywhere saying, oh, inverted yield curve means a recession's coming and then the recession doesn't come. And then everybody says, "Okay, well, I guess this time is different. And we're going to have no recession because the yield curve inverted. And we haven't had a recession yet. But it's never the inversion of the yield curve that is the recessionary indicator. It's when it uninverts that is your recessionary indicator. And we're beginning that uninversion process on one of our yield curve. So uh, we, we track 10 different yield spreads from the one month to the three month to the 10 year. And... Out of the 10 that we track, only one has now uninverted, and that's the one-month, three-month. So on the very, very short end, we have an uninversion, but the 10-year and the two-year Treasury inversion is beginning its uninversion. So we may be – and again, as I was talking about earlier, seeing a big big drop in gasoline demand, credit card sales are starting to drop off. So that lag effect we've spoken about for a while is playing catch-up. So anyway, bit of background on the 90s. But in 1998 – there was this one event that we touched on previously. Mike just wrote an article about it because whenever the Fed hikes rates, it always causes a problem somewhere. And it's just always the question of where that will show up. So, Mike, in 1998, what was so important about hairdos and uh, higher interest rates? Well, Russia defaulted. Um, we had an Asian set of Asian defaults right around then, a year earlier as well, and uh, long term capital. Um, and I, I wrote the article because I wrote one the prior week that basically said we are going to have a financial crisis. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of a scary thought to basically come out and say we will have one. Um, but, it, you know, again, you look back through history and there have been financial crises every single time the Fed has appreciably hiked rates. Mm-hmm. And what they've done now is above and beyond what they've done just about every other time. So we are going to have a crisis. And I got a a few emails from people, you know, scared that the sky's going to fall. What do I do? So I I wrote a follow-up article and I I wrote about two crises, the uh, long-term capital crisis and one in 1966, which I knew very little about. So, you know, I learned about that one as well. And let me talk about long-term capital. Long-term capital was a hedge fund founded by the best and brightest on Wall Street. A a a Solomon Brothers was the bond trading firm at the time. Their head trader, John Merriweather, left to form long-term capital. 
he brought along two Nobel Prize winners, uh, Merton, Merton and uh, Scholes, and uh, or um, I'm drawing a blank on the other name, um, and an ex-Fed and a vice chairman from the Fed, who was a vice chair under Greenspan, and a bunch of other well-known, well-established finance Wall Street professionals. And they were making some pretty simple and relatively safe bets. When you look at the price of future contracts, so the right to buy or sell something at a date in the future, and you look at the spot price or the price today, we know for a fact that they those prices will be the same in the future. But between now and the future, they they converge and they diverge. And long-term capital was set up to make largely to make those kind of bets that when the divergence between two securities kind of got out of the norm, they would bet that it would go back the other way and converge. And, you know, in theory, not in theory, in actuality, they would have been 100% correct if they could hold on to their positions. But what happened was Russia defaulted um, and, and there was just a flight to quality to U.S. Treasuries where they had some bets and some of those divergences in illiquid markets and with money rushing into the treasury markets diverged more. They had to post more collateral and they eventually got called out of their positions and had to take big losses. And there were losses on other products as well. And those losses were big enough that it basically put them out of business. So what's important to think about with long-term capital is they were 20 leveraged at least 25 to one. So a 4% loss on their underlying bet would basically wipe out their equity, at which point they either have to raise new equity or they can uh, they can basically go under. Um, so the importance of leverage, even if there's not a lot of debt in the system and not a lot of leverage, if there's one person with a lot of leverage, it take it can take very little to bring them under. Then you have, well, who lent them the money? It was the big banks and the big banks are leveraged. So they start running into the same problem. Well, if, if long-term capital is going to take a two or $3 billion loss, well, then the banks are going to have to take that kind of loss as well. And it just spirals. And it just reminds you that even in the late 90s or in the late 60s, as I wrote about the other, when the level of debt was much less than it is today, this financial system is really a bunch of dominoes lined up. And it only takes one or two dominoes to fall to just get the rest of them to fall. And so the reason I wrote it is not to say how nim how fragile our system is, our financial system, because it's more fragile today than it was for either of those two crises. What really matters is the Fed's reaction. How quickly do they come to the rescue? They came to the rescue pretty quickly with long-term capital. No one else failed. And it was pretty much a one-off event. Um, and, you know, in March of this year, we saw that, too, with the regional banking crisis. We had a couple big bank failures, you know, second and third and fourth largest bank failures that we've ever seen behind Washington Mutual in uh, 2007 or 2008. And, but the Fed came to the rescue really quickly with a funding program for the banks to help them out. And that crisis went away within two weeks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think what's important is to A, realize we're going to have a crisis, but B, realize the crisis shouldn't really be the concern. The concern should be how quickly does the Fed react? 
So the Fed keeps telling us it's higher for longer. We're going to fight inflation. That's our number one goal. If they stick with that and there's a crisis and they don't come to the rescue with lower rates, with funding programs, with, you know, QE, with all those kind of things, a crisis can get blown up like we saw in 2007, 2008, where the Fed was very slow to react. So, so again, we're going to have a crisis and we will see how the Fed, how quickly the Fed gives up on their inflation target. Well, now, most likely, if we have a crisis, inflation will be below where they want it to be anyway. So it may not be an yeah. issue. Well, and, and so, first of all, two, two things to, to point out here, and we'll talk about this some more on the other side of the break is that I just want to clarify that when Mike's talking about a financial crisis, everybody immediately goes back to 2008 and the banking crisis and, and what we had with the mortgage crisis. You know, when the term financial crisis can mean any event that is related to the financial system, it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have the magnitude of the crisis right. we saw in 2008. In 1989, we had the savings and loan crisis. We had Orange County bankruptcy. We had just a bond market crash in 1994. Uh, you had long-term capital management. Uh, these things can be very different, but they're all financial crises. But they can be different in size and magnitude. So your your first, I just want to make, I don't want you to run off panicking and start liquidating everything you own because Mike says we're going to have another 2008 financial crisis. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying we're going to have a crisis related to some financial event and that's important to differentiate in fact we'll talk about higher for longer because this isn't the first time the fed has said that and we'll talk about the last time that they said this as well don't go away be right back The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. And hey, welcome back to the show this morning. You know, it's funny, all these uh, NFL football fans are going, who is this little-known singer that's hanging out with Travis Kelsey? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, most guys watching football, they're like, Taylor who? <laughs> so, it just depends on which side of the fence you're on, right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, all right. So welcome back to the show. Michael Lee Bush joining me this morning. Um, so I want to put a couple of things in, into, into perspective here for a moment. because um, so I want to talk about this higher for longer attitude of the Fed Mike touched on because it's going to be very critical to what's going on. Um, you know, we're talking about the Silicon Valley, uh, sorry, the uh, long-term capital management bank failure. And so what happened was, and as Mike alluded to, is that they were taking on these heavily leveraged bets and basically got called. And the Fed had to orchestrate with 14 banks to do a bailout. And that bailout was about $3.6 billion that was orchestrated by these 14 banks. I just want to put that into, into context for you. So that was 1998. $3.6 billion, and that helped 
keep but all that did was was shore up their positions and give them time so they could unwind long-term capital management on an orderly basis so it just it just pre prevented a sudden abrupt default is all that did and everybody kind of worked themselves out of the positions over the next you know period of time just to put that into some perspective on size um just recently credit swiss which also just passed its bank stress test uh, with the Federal Reserve. It says they're completely fine. Um, <laughs> they, they were basically bailed out and supported in their uh, merger with UBS. The size of that was $230 billion for Credit Suisse. So just it's orders of – so bailouts today – or orders of magnitude larger than what we saw in long-term capital management back in 2008. And that's because we have so much more debt, so much more leverage in the system. You know, we've done uh, 13 years of zero interest rates and trillions of dollars of Fed liquidity into markets. So things have become, you know, phenomenally larger in terms of magnitude um, in the size of assets we're talking about because of all that liquidity that the Fed was shoving in to support the economy, the banks were loving it. They were, they were yeah, send that capital and we're going to go, you know, do, you know, sell bonds and sell stocks and we're going to do all this stuff. And it just, it just created a massive expansion of financial assets. So, you know, that's just, I just want to put that out there because as we talk about the risk of, you know, these, higher for longer attitudes of the Fed, the the impacts of these events become larger and larger over time. So just put that in your, you know, just kind of uh, keep that Lance, in the back of your mind. Yeah. Lance, it also means the Fed's reaction has to be larger and larger. Correct. So that means lower and lower rates, and it means more and more QE, and then additional programs, financing programs to help those in trouble. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but this brings up a really good point, though, uh, Mike, and I wanted to, to to really kind of focus on your comment about higher for longer because this isn't the first time we've we've heard the Fed say higher for longer, and you know this has been you know kind of the stance by the Fed is that you know they they make this position and it sounds like they're serious about it this time and and they're really going to do this and then you know something else happens, but. Um, before we get to that, I, I want to touch on the sell-off that we had earlier this week, um, particularly on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, fairly deep sell-off in both bonds and stocks. Stocks were down sharply, bond yields up, bond prices down rather sharply. Of course, this you know brought out a lot of media headlines about what was going on, but it really kind of there, there really wasn't. Again, everybody you know the media you've always got to be careful about because they just search for whatever headline kind of matches the moment. And one of my favorite stories was back in uh, 2000 uh, during the uh, dot com crash. I was um, on a different radio station with Brent, and we were talking about IBM. And that morning, IBM was down sharply. It was down like 20 percent in the morning. Uh, during this crisis because IBM was laying off 5,000 workers. And in the afternoon, the headlines, uh, the market then bounced intraday and, and IBM got back to positive territory. And the headline at the end of the day said, IBM rises on uh, announced layoff of 5,000 workers. It can't be both is the point. So <laughs> the media is always trying to assign a headline to what's going on. So this week, the sell-off in both the bonds and stock market was because of stronger economic data. We had the jolt survey that came in stronger than expected. Again, it was a bounce and a downtrend. That, that's all it was. Um, 
And we had some other data that came, ISM services came a little bit stronger than expected. Again, a bounce and a downtrend. But the media immediately assigned the headline, oh, this is why the markets are reacting the way they are, because this means the Fed's going to have to hike rates. And, you know, but what it really felt like, Mike, is when you step back from that, this looked more like a liquidation event of some sort, like something was getting unwound somewhere, maybe a major hedge fund, whatever, or, or, or something like that because of the veracity of the sell-off. And really, it was across all assets at one time. Uh, did you have, uh, and, I, and I have a thesis for this, and I want to visit this in a second, but did you have any, any thoughts about that earlier this week? No, I, I kind of felt the same thing. This felt like a capitulation event, and it, it may be foreign, it may be domestic, but someone like long-term capital is being forced to get out of bond positions, out of some stock positions. Um, that It had the feel, it had the violence, it had the stomach churning, you know, where I'm nauseous all day kind of feeling. <laughs> uh, but but those those type of moves don't last very long and they can be very extreme. And quite often, like you said, with IBM, the market will bounce back in the other direction once that event kind of gets out of the way. Mm. But I don't have any uh, idea on what it might be. What, what are you thinking? Well, no, this is and this is where we go back to higher for longer. And and again, I you know this kind of this uh, again, this kind of reminded me of 2018. In September of 2018, the Federal Reserve was saying higher for longer. They said specifically, quote, we are nowhere near the neutral rate. And this was in September of 2018. President Trump is in office at this time and we're launching a trade war against China. Um, inflation is ticking up and the Federal Reserve is hiking interest rates and we're nowhere near the neutral rate. Of course, immediately at that point, and, and kind of similar to what we saw in the last Fed meeting of this higher for longer, stocks immediately sold off. We were down 20% by December. Of course, President Trump at the time, Mike, you remember you and I were talking about this, um, that the, the, the Fed chairman serves at the pleasure of the president. So um, the president was saying, you know, hey, you know, we need to get rid of Jerome Powell. He's not doing his sure. job. He's hurting the economy. He needs to be cutting rates. And he was standing firm, and everybody believed at the moment, right, that Jerome Powell was now this different animal. He was not this political animal we'd seen with Yellen and seen with Bernanke, and he was going to be different. He was going to, you know, hold fast. And then, of course, and, the, and the, there's a reason behind I'm telling you this, reminding you of all this story, is that the markets did start to rebound in January. By June, the Fed had cut rates to zero. In September, the Federal Reserve then launched a massive repo campaign. And Mike and I were on the show talking at that time about this repo operation. Why, you know, if you had a Mercedes parked in your driveway as collateral for an overnight loan, why were people charging 10% for overnight lending? It didn't make any sense. And of course, this was all in a function that behind the scenes, and we didn't know this till much later. It didn't come out until probably November, December, Mike. I can't remember exactly when. But right. we found out later in the year that Citadel Capital and other hedge funds were basically on the ropes. And the Federal Reserve was working behind the scenes with this, ro this repo program to kind of bail out these hedge funds. And I got a lot of that same sense this week, Mike, with this higher for longer. We had the sell-off in the market. You had this jump in bond yields. And all of, a, all of a sudden, this kind of this feeling of something kind of breaking. And my question is, is, you know, are we going to find out in a few months that we were bailing out some hedge fund kind of behind the scenes somewhere? 
And if I had a guess, I would actually say it was a foreign entity mm -hmm. because the dollar as well was going to the moon. Right. The dollar was extremely overbought while stocks and bonds extremely oversold. So it might be dollar related. I mean, it could be a U.S. hedge fund with dollar bets on as well. Mm -hmm. um, so what I you know, one thing I've been looking for, will the Fed reopen their foreign currency swap lines? What, That's what is that? always a sign that someone's in trouble. Hey, explain what that is, though, real quick. So, people so basically, the the U.S. will essentially lend money to far, to other central banks via an exchange of currencies. So that allows for those currency trades to happen off market. So it doesn't affect the price of the dollar or whatever the other currency is that's being swapped, and it provides liquidity to that nation, which in turn to that central bank, which in turn can help whoever may be failing. So you know we could do it with this. We do it with the Swiss bank a lot, and the Swiss could bail out UBS or help out UBS, for instance, mm -hmm. a big Swiss bank. Right. And, and again, that's that's you know, there's a lot of things that are that are happening. And again, you know, we haven't seen the Fed cut rates yet. But one of the things to look back to, again, is the media drive, you know, higher for longer. That's exactly what they were saying in September of 2018 as markets were declining. But the most important thing to take away from this, and we'll we'll touch on this, you know, after the break, is that the the Federal Reserve only has a stomach for so much pain. Um, there is a point to where the Fed, the Federal Reserve will step in and say, this can't happen much longer because, and particularly when it comes to interest rates, this is the biggest problem the Fed faces. Interest rates are a ticking time bomb against all that debt that's sitting out there. There is only so far the Fed can let rates rise before they have to take action. We'll talk about that and the importance of that on the other side of the break. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com so welcome back to the show uh talk a little bit about you know again you know this idea of the fed's stance of higher for longer and it sounds great in theory and and the markets and the media are certainly you know trying to buy into this idea but you know, it's important to remember that the Fed only has so much tolerance for issues of things that cause stress in the financial markets, whether it's falling stock prices. You know, there's a point to where they can only allow stock prices to fall so far. And this is something this is a trap they got themselves into back in really with Ben Bernanke in, in, in 2010. And most importantly, because they linked consumer confidence and economic strength to the stock market. And this is why they launched the second round of quantitative easing was to boost asset prices in order to improve consumer confidence, which would in turn improve economic growth. So there's now the Fed has now created this linkage between the stock market, the consumer and economic growth. So this this tolerance for lower stock prices 
is a deflationary pressure that the Federal Reserve doesn't want. So if, if, if they can, they 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 don't mind stock prices coming down some, right? They just can't allow them to have a 20, 30, 40, 50 percent, you know, drawdown. That's where it becomes problematic for the economy, and then takes away their ability to kind of control inflation. Because for the Fed, inflation is one thing; deflation is a much different thing. Uh, deflation deflationary cycles are very hard to break because they're psychological. And once prices are coming down, people go, "Oh, I'll just wait." Because prices are coming down, which makes prices come down more. So they say, I'll wait, and which makes prices come down more. <laughs> so, you know, it, once you get in that deflationary cycle, very tough cycle to break and, and, and something the Fed really is concerned about. But, um, you know, importantly, you know, also it's, it's interest rates. Interest rates can only rise so far, and the Fed is very well aware that the stress on banks. We currently have this bank term funding program in place to – help support collateral values at regional banks. Regional banks and, and actually major banks are about to show big losses on their books because of this rise in interest rates. That can only go so far before you start to imperil the capital of all these of all the banks. And the, and the entire financial system comes under extreme pressure, not to mention the, the, the impact of higher rates on the, home, on the housing market. Um, not to mention the impact of higher interest rates on credit card debt, consumer loans, all these other things. We have such a debt-laden economy. This idea of higher for longer sounds great. And I am sure the Fed is, is certainly intentioned on staying higher for longer to try to get inflation down. But that attitude will change very quickly when something breaks. Mike, I'll, I'll stop there and let you jump in. Yeah, absolutely. Higher for longer is higher until something breaks. And I think we're getting really close to things breaking at this point. You, you look at the housing market, it is shut down. The mortgage purchase index from the NBA is back at a 95 at a low since 1995. The you know, major parts of the economy cannot operate without leverage. And as as you stay longer, it's not the higher the, the level of rate is high now. Now it's the longer that's really taken effect. And the longer we stay at current rates, maybe a little higher, maybe a little lower, the more breakage, so to speak, you're going to have in the economy. And, you know, I think we're going to start, you're starting to see it. Used car prices have been coming down pretty sharply. So I think you're really going to slowly start to see this lag effect start to overwhelm the economy at the same time, all that stimulus is wearing away. Student loans now have to be repaid. Other programs are falling away. So, you know, it's kind of all coming to a head. It's certainly taking longer, but the Fed is Fed is accomplishing their goal. Inflation is getting back to target, which is 2%. And, you know, there's a kind of a common misnomer with that as well. Mm -hmm. The Fed just wants inflation back to 2%. That means they want it to run to prices to increase 2% a year going forward. That doesn't mean prices are going back to where they were in 2020. Right. And, well, and, and that's a big deal because everyone complains that a sandwich is 14 bucks when you go to lunch. Well, the Fed's not doesn't want to bring it down back down at $8. The right. Fed just wants to make sure that price of the sandwich is only going up. Two percent you know, a year. Two uh, percent a year. Yeah, and and that's and that's a hugely important point because when you talk about higher oil prices, higher energy prices, immediately everybody's like, "Oh, inflation's about to start ticking back up, and the Fed's going to have to hike rates even more because they want two percent inflation." 
they and again to your point the misnomer is is that the fed's trying to crush inflation and they're not they don't want deflation they want inflation they just want inflation to run at two percent a year so if 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 gas was four dollars a gallon in january next january they want that they that dollar a gallon of gas two percent higher uh, still inflation right it's just not running at three percent but importantly and, and this is also something that people miss the fed's been very clear in their statements they want a clear and a a a, a very clear and sustainable trajectory of inflation falling back to two percent so they're not worried about a little uptick in inflation because of you know a jump in gas prices or jump in oil prices which is now going to go away in the next report uh, in three months because oil prices are now declining um they're not concerned about these little upticks they just want to know the tra tra the overall trajectory of inflation is heading back towards their target right lance and you brought up something really good there with the price of gasoline everyone's looking at the price of crude oil and assuming that's the price of energy that right. we use and the price of crude had a big, you know, it was down a lot, four or five bucks yesterday, but it's still what around 85 and it's, it's, you know, it's off its highs for the year, but still in the upper range of where it's been throughout the year. The price of gasoline is at a low for the year. Like the gasoline is what we use. Mm -hmm. Gasoline is what drives CPI. So you know, there's this narrative, you know, we've seen these narratives that inflation is ticking up, but it, it's not get not in gasoline. And, and that's one of those things. Well, the price of oil is going up, but it doesn't matter. Gasoline is what we're using. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, these narratives that that kind of are built around market events can be very misleading and can force more people into those trades, which makes those trades more extreme. It can make stocks fall more than they should. It can make yields rise more than they should. But as that happens, those stocks, bonds, whatever it may be, get further away from their true, from their real fundamental values. Right. And that's when you kind of get these sharp corrections one way or another or bounce backs yeah. as kind of reality as the economy, as inflation kind of shows its true face. Yeah, that's right. And, and again, this is why it's always important to kind of separate out. And, and, and again, it's, it's, as individuals, you know, we watch the media or we watch some YouTube interview or whatever it is, or you watch some stupid radio show on at six o'clock in the morning on YouTube, um, you know, and, you know, the, the you've got to be careful about all these headlines and narratives because, again, you've got to step back and say, OK, I, I get that. But what's driving it? Is it sustainable? And what does that actually mean? And again, we've talked about before, energy only makes up 7% of CPI. And that's all forms of energy. That's utility costs. Mike, as Mike said, gasoline. Um, that is natural gas you know, to, to heat your home. That's heating oil where Mike lives because uh, winter's coming. So you know, heating oil is going to be an issue for him. Um, but all those forms of energy only make up 7% of CPI. You know, housing's over 30 so if you're going to pay attention to anything as it relates to inflation, pay attention to homeowners equivalent rent, which is what drives and which ultimately drives the the entire mix of inflation because it's such a big component. Transportation's right behind that, healthcare costs right behind that. So, you know, pay attention to the things that matter rather than the narratives that potentially push you into to investments that may not work out to your advantage, you know, over the longer term. Uh, but, you know, Mike, uh, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. I do have a question for no. you about housing. 
Yeah, real, well, uh, I was going to talk about housing. Housing is, I think it's actually 40% between implied rents and actual rents. Mm-hmm. And the way that the BLS calculates it, they're delayed, they're lagging. Their current CPI data for housing lags anywhere from six to nine months. So we're not guessing on, on where CPI is going to show housing for the next three or six months. We know where it is because there's plenty of market index, indices that tell us where rent prices and where house prices have been. And they all tell us that the year over change in house prices and rents is around zero. Some are slightly positive, some are slightly negative. And yet the BLS, BLS index still shows 4% plus increases year over year in in rent prices. We know that's coming down and that's almost half of CPI. So when a mar- when when you hear these narratives focused on energy on these things that are 6-7% on used cars which are what 3 or 4%, right? It doesn't matter. They're they're dwarfed by the elephant in a room <laughs> and we know that those prices are coming down. Right. Yeah, I know it's it's a very interesting but real quick uh, cuz we only have about a minute. Um, but is there an opportunity here in mortgage-backed bonds because, you know, when ultimately we start to see interest rates come down, uh, refinancing activity should pick back up and the duration of these mortgage-backed bonds should drop pretty quickly. So is there a good opportunity maybe in, in some of these longer duration like Ginny Mae um, type securities? Yeah, absolutely. When we get when we get a durable decline in yields, and by durable I mean that we're starting to establish trends, we're setting technical levels, we're getting confident that the high in yields has been set. I, I think it's a great opportunity in mortgages. You pick up more yield, and there's other benefits. When people prepay mortgages, it happens at par, and these these mortgages can be priced at 70, 80, 90 cents on the dollar. So as some of these mortgages prepay, you get an extra bonus, whereas other bonds don't prepay. Yeah. So, yeah, but a lot of banks own mortgages. So if higher for longer is the story of the day, banks may have to sell them. There you go. Thanks so much. Uh, all right, we got to wrap that up. Maybe we'll talk some more about that next uh, Thursday, Mike, and uh, maybe do analysis on some of those uh, kind of opportunities. I think there's something coming up there for us. Uh, be sure and get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get Mike's latest article. Send us your questions, comments, emails. Have a great day. Uh, Danny Ratliff, Richard Russell here tomorrow for Financial Fitness Friday. See you then.